Well, despite the title of this sermon, I hope you've had a wonderful Christmas. I hope it's been the best Christmas ever for you. On the other hand, it's possible that we've eaten too much, we've done too much, or perhaps even done too little, or we're just about ready for Cousin Eddie to go home, or at least to step away from the eggnog just for a while. Whatever our situation, there is at least for me, and I think for many of us, something of an inevitable letdown when Christmas is over. It sounds harsh to say it, but Christmas can be disappointing. The fever pitch of getting ready for Christmas followed by this letdown that it's over. And now we have so much left to do and house to clean and all of these things that we think about. This is especially true, and it's true on a serious level, if we've suffered a recent grief, or if we're going through a chronic illness, or we're in the middle of a relationship meltdown. When you're in emotional pain, you, after all, are looking for something more than just good cheer and best wishes. We know that most of the music that we sing at Christmas is upbeat and it's intended to encourage us, and it generally does, and it's wonderful. One of the most popular secular songs about Christmas, though, is decidedly melancholy. A man who happened to be from my own hometown was the co-writer of the famous Christmas tune, Have Yourself a Merry Little Christmas. Maybe you're already thinking the words in your head, I will spare you my singing the verses, but let me simply say them. Have yourself a merry little Christmas. Let your heart be light. From now on, your troubles will be out of sight. It's done in that sort of minor key format. And so the writer of that song was a man named Ralph Blaine. Ralph is now deceased, but I got to know him a bit, and since he lived in the same city, I once went to hear him talk about the song and the origins of the song. He said he wrote it because so many of the Christmas songs didn't get at the melancholy that a lot of people feel at Christmas time, and he felt that it was popular because it acknowledged the troubles that all of us have and the relief we need from the vexing troubles of the day. He also happened to mention in that talk that actually when he heard it on the radio, each time he heard it on the radio, he was quite cheered by it because after all, the royalties of the song enabled Ralph to live a very comfortable life. That's one way to beat the Christmas blues. In the first text we'll hear today, we will see in the Bible that the Christmas story is not all sweetness and light. After Jesus was born, and after this beautiful baby shower that the Magi threw for the infant Jesus, Joseph received some very disappointing news in a dream. You might remember in last week's sermon, Dan commented on the previous dream that Joseph had had that he was to take the pregnant Mary to be his wife. Joseph was more than a little bit dazed by all that had happened, and amazingly, this dream clarified everything. 
And he accepted the full weight of his responsibilities. It's a powerful example of Joseph's own personal reliability and his willingness to say yes to God's intentions for him. Now in the text for the morning, he receives another vision in a dream that he is to take Mary and this child to Egypt because Herod was plotting to kill the baby boy. If you'll find in your Bibles or look in the screen, I would like to read Matthew chapter 2, verses 13 through 23, the account of the escape to Jesus precipitated by this dream that Joseph had in order to protect the baby Jesus. When they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said. Take the child and the mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night, and left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, Out of Egypt I called my son. When Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious, and he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years and under in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. Then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping in great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted, Because they are no more. After Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, Get up, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel. For those who were trying to take the child's life are dead. So he got up, took the child and his mother, and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning, in, was reigning in Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. Having been warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a town called Nazareth. So was fulfilled what was said through the prophets. He will be called a Nazarene. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. As inconvenient as it sounds that Joseph would have to move his family, the reality is a lot worse than we could even imagine. In the eyes of a faithful man like Joseph, going to Egypt was the last thing one would want to do. Egypt, after all, was the place where God's, from which God's people were delivered Egypt represented exile and misery. Clearly, God was protecting Jesus and his family from the evil Herod was about to perpetrate. But Joseph could hardly have known the full weight of the misery that was to fall on the region of Bethlehem. We can't know the number of babies, number of small boys that Herod killed, Scholars think it might have been as many as 20. 
we wince at this and we think how horrible it is that Jesus' birth was accompanied by so many innocents in so much pain. But then we awake from our own slumber and we realize that hundreds of children and adults in places like Syria and Sudan and other war-torn regions suffer every day. Every day in this world, Christians are harassed and put to death for their faith around in Christ. The safety we enjoy is not a safety that many Christians around the world experience. The passages for this lectionary text, they're all tough passages except in some way for Psalm 148. Psalm 148 presents a great contrast to the passage from Matthew chapter 2. In Matthew chapter 2, we see the lament and the anguish of the mothers crying out for their children in stark contrast with the joy of the wise men. In Psalm 148, the very creation of God cries out, but not in pain, but in praise. In Matthew, it's a cry of despair. In the psalm, it's a cry of unremitted joy. How can it be? Is it possible that God can be dramatically present in both pain and suffering? In praise and pain together, God is present. Is it possible that Emmanuel, God with us, is genuinely beside us in seasons of joy as well as he is genuinely beside us in seasons of struggle? The answer, of course, to that is yes. But we would very much prefer, all of us would, that God would just take all the misery, all the harsh things, all the evil things, all the struggles of this world, and make those destructive things go away for reasons too challenging for us to fully understand, certainly for me. What we discover is that in pain or in praise, God is encountered in our relationship with him. It is in that relationship that we have with God through Jesus that God encounters us in both of those seasons of life, and he's with us in seasons and times when we flourish and in seasons and times when we suffer. Emmanuel Emmanuel makes no promises of a pain-free life. And there are times, oh, we so wish he would. But he makes no promises of a pain-free life. But what he does promise is his presence, God with us, and that's enough. There's hope beyond the hurting. And that's the promise of a God who in his son is with us and for us and who knows how we hurt when we hurt. That's the powerful promise from one of the other lectionary passages. From Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 through 18, it reads, Since the children have flesh and blood, he shared in their humanity, so that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but Abraham's descendants. For this reason he had to be made like his brothers in every way, 
in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. Because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. To put it simply, Jesus is our constant companion, friend, and brother. In Isaiah chapter 63, the Word also proclaims that the nature of God we serve is a God who is with us and for us. The prophet says at the beginning of chapter 63, our God is mighty to save. He is like a general robed in splendor, riding into battle on our behalf. His garments are stained with crimson, bloody from the day of battle. Our God, the Word tells us, is not a God who is distant from the battlefield. He fights for us. He stands with us. He advocates for us. Our God is a God who knows what hurt is like, and He knows what we deal with. Our Emmanuel, spared from demise at his birth, we know his eventual story. He had a major battle to win, and though that battle cost him his life, it was only a short victory for the forces of evil. Our general has crimson on his robes, and he knows what it's like to be disappointed or even devastated. Occasionally, there's something in about a person who reminds you of the character and nature of God himself. Now, Isaiah's words may be too warlike for some, and battlefield imagery is certainly only one way of describing God's nature. But a battle-scarred leader from World War II reminds me very much of what's being said in Isaiah 63. In his Pulitzer Prize-winning book, An Army at Dawn, Rick Atkinson tells the story of the first combat for American soldiers in World War II. It took place in the battles of North Africa. One of the American generals was a man named Theodore Roosevelt. No, not the president, Teddy Roosevelt, but his son. The general, Theodore Roosevelt, had fought years before in World War I. There he was severely wounded, went back into civilian life. When World War II broke out, the country prevailed on him to again serve. He was assigned to the armies of North Africa. Roosevelt was an unlikely hero. He was described as having the voice of a foghorn, but he was also arthritic, walked with a cane, had a heart compromised by several different heart attacks. He had compromised vision, and at age 55 was not exactly the vision of youthful vigor on the battlefield. But this was a man who served his country, and he's the man who led Americans into their first battle of the war. It was said of Roosevelt that he despised war, absolutely despised it. 
and was a strong voice for peace before the cataclysmic war began. But when war came, he was all in. General Roosevelt's troops were very untested. It was their first great battle. They had trained. They had never fought before. This battle was in Tunisia. The general's soldiers were naturally timid. They were shocked by the nature of war. They were quite literally shell-shocked that in that first great battle were refusing to move because they were just frozen in place. General Roosevelt, seeing the situation, jumped in a jeep and had the driver maneuver to the front. And he asked the driver to just charge the lines of the enemy. Now, the truth is, Roosevelt, who was standing in back, standing in the back seat with a rifle, couldn't see anything. But he fired his gun with bravery. The troops were rallied, and they charged ahead and were victorious in that first battle. It's always effective when the leader takes command and in Isaiah's words, bears the stain of crimson on his uniform. Our God is like that. He's been in the fray. He's in the fray with us when the battle is raging. His garments bear the stain of crimson. He knows suffering. And when people struggle, he is with them in the suffering. Pastor Laura Truax has another way to describe the matter. Recently in a writing reflecting on the fact that it was only about a year ago that she was re-remembering with her congregation the tragedy at Sandy Hook, Connecticut. She recalled that both then and in the first year anniversary, she struggled She struggled with what to say and even what to pray and how to pray for the families. She said she was helped when one of her colleagues gave her a quote from, of all people, Mr. Rogers, who said, when I was a boy and I would see scary things in the news, my mother would say to me, look for the helpers. You will always find helpers you will always find people helping. That's what God's people are called to be. That's who we are. That's what we do. We we can't make the griefs of life go away, but we make them possible to bear. Joseph and his family had a helper. The angel who whispered into his mind, It's time to go. Flee. That was just his first helper. I have no doubt they received other help along the way and in their time in exile in Egypt and on their trip back to Nazareth. It's possible, even in the midst of life's deepest disappointments and even in the midst of our greatest griefs, it's possible to believe that God is in control and that he will use his army of people to be helpers for us as we will be for them. 
God uses his army, the church, to be his helpers in this world, to make the world more right. All of us, I'm sure, have witnessed this or experienced this personally when God's helpers come alongside of a really difficult situation. I want to share one time of that for my family and for me, one that we will personally never forget. Much of my family's life has revolved around sports, probably more than is really useful. But when you're a family of tall people, you find your way into gyms. It's just what happens. One night on the final home game of our oldest son's junior year of high school, our school's basketball team was facing a rival. It was the last game of the season. It was for the conference championship. There was a full gym and a big crowd and lots of excitement. It was a great basketball game. The first half ended roughly in a tie. We came out for the second half. Our team was playing really well, but so was the other team. Everything was on the line as if those things really matter. But that's what's fun about a basketball game. Just after the second half started, one of our son John's teammates fell abruptly on the floor. The gym got very quiet because Aaron, his name, Aaron, wasn't moving at all. My wife, Laurie, happens to be a physician, and she's not the kind of person who just asserts herself in situations like this. But she had this look in her eye, and she just bolted from her seat near the floor where we were sitting. And she went out to Aaron and immediately began to perform CPR with the trainer. It all happened so fast. I knew we were in crisis. We all knew we were in crisis. And that was the scene, a 15-year-old, wonderful young man, a future basketball prodigy, lying lifeless on the gym floor. People were weeping. You can imagine the scene. I don't have to describe all of it, but you can imagine his parents and the whole scene. Unfortunately, they weren't able to bring Aaron back to life. A heart deformity that they did not know of had shown itself, and he was gone. Eventually, the gym began to empty, but it took some time. People embraced and cried. We, despite our best efforts, there was nothing we could do. But our family remembers not only that night and the tragedy of it, but we all look back to how quickly emerged the helpers, the coach of the other team who prayed with and consoled his own, his own, his own team, the people from the stands embracing one another, hugging one another, people figuring out what it was they could do to help, help with this situation. And then we remembered that Not only was there a great deal of prayer that night, but helpers emerged day in and day out throughout the succeeding days. We had people who began to 
raise money for the family because Aaron's dad didn't have very much. In fact, he was out of work when all of this happened. And so a man who was at the gym that night, as soon as Aaron's father was able, was given a job. A college scholarship was set aside for Aaron's younger sister. A fundraiser was held and was attended by hundreds and hundreds of people to purchase defibrillators for all the gyms in our community. There were many responses over the next weeks and months. To this day, 12 years later, Aaron has remembered his retired number honored on the last game of every season at that school. What happened was, in spite of this great tragedy, that Aaron's many friends and especially his wonderful family were able to put one foot in front of another and carry on with life because by God's good grace, helpers emerged and provided comfort and support. That's what the family of God does. That's what God does in seasons of great grief. I don't know specifically the support that Joseph and Mary received on their journey to Egypt, but I would be very surprised if God hadn't made provision for ample assistance along the way. People need support and they need care. It's why we make announcements like we made in the first news of the family that before we began the message about grief shared, about divorce recovery. People need support and care. We're all called to be helpers. In our time at Christ Church, Laurie and I have witnessed a lot of care and a lot of support for people. And I want to remind us all that if you're living in pain or you're just living with a series of continual disappointments, we pray, the church prays, and the church will come alongside that help is available. If by some chance through it all, you doubt your own faith or wonder if God has abandoned you in your season of pain, remember this image of the holy family trudging off to a foreign and frightening place hunted by a madman bent on their destruction. If Jesus wasn't exempt from pain, neither will we be free of it. But like them, helpers are here. That's what God's people do. That's why we can be especially glad for Christmas, forever glad that in Emmanuel, God is with us now and forever. Would you pray with me? God, as we face the dawn of a new year, as we reflect on your wonderful goodness in the Christmas story, as we think about helpers surrounding people in need, Lord, can we just take an easy confidence and a deep breath that whatever the new year brings, and there will doubtless be much joy, but if there are seasons of pain, you will be with us, Emmanuel, no matter what happens.
God is with us, and for this, Lord, we give you thanks. Amen.